All right, welcome back. We are picking it up in chapter 11. Just in case you weren't here with us, uh, this is the, the end of the second cycle of this presentation of the revelation of Jesus Christ and how he is fulfilling all things. We saw the, the seven trumpets here are being blown. Again, the trumpets are uh, uh, announcements of judgment that is coming. It's intended to do two things. It's intended to stir the, the hearts of the people to be ready for the judgment that's to come. Uh, and then it's also to serve as, as a warning that it is coming. So there's anticipation and also trembling that is happening here with these, uh, these trumpets being blown uh, we've seen the, the opening of the seventh seal, which then introduces the trumpets there in, in chapter 8. And we see the, the, the first four trumpets that were blown, where a third of the earth was destroyed. Now, the fifth trumpet introduced the, the first woe. We're going to see the other woes here in, in, in just a moment. Um, the end of chapter 9, we saw the, the sixth trumpet with the woe of death and the, the four angels with the Euphrates River. And then in chapter 10, the mighty angels with the scrolls. And now in chapter 11, we are going to see two witnesses at, at the temple. And they are, going to be, um, they are going to be proclaiming a word and they will be persecuted. And this is going to be a word that's going to be instructive for, for us and Christians in every age. So let's, let's look here at chapter 11 with the two witnesses at the temple. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So John here is given a measuring rod, and he is told to measure the temple of God. Now, as we've learned, anytime you see something like that and you don't know what, what it means, what question are we supposed to ask? Where is that in the Old Testament? Well, maybe our minds would go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, we see a very similar scene. In Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel is set on a high mountain, and he is approached there by, by an angel, and the angel has a measuring reed in his hand, and the angel takes Ezekiel on a, a tour of, of the temple, and he measures the temple of God. Now, the question is, well, well, what temple? And there's a lot of discussion when people are going through the book of Ezekiel of what that, that temple represents. But what's clear is that it's a new, future, glorious temple in which, chapter 43, the glory of the Lord will return to the temple in a unique, amazing way, which is hugely important because you'll remember that the glory had departed earlier in Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel culminates with this, this picture of the prophet being told to, to measure the temple, this place where God's glory is going to return, which is supposed to give hope to the exiles who are there. That's the same sort of scene that's being alluded to here. John is told to do a, 
a similar, he's given a similar task, right? He, he's to take this rod and he's to march around and he is to measure the temple. Well, the same question uh, comes up for us. Well, what is this temple that John sees? Now, there's, there's basically two interpretations uh, to, to, to answer that. What, what is this temple? The first is that he's speaking here of, or he's seeing, a, a literal future temple in Jerusalem. This will be clear. This is the view that I used to hold. Um, I, I don't hold it any longer, but you can be a, a faithful believer and, and hold this view. Some would, would see the temple in Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48, and this temple here in Revelation 11 as being a literal, physical temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, where the current dome of the rock uh, is, is located. Again, I, I used to hold that, that view. And I want to be, be clear, I certainly think that there could be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that would have you know, Im- impact on a, on a lot of things, but I, I don't think that's what's in view here, and I don't think that has to happen in order for all things to be fulfilled. Well then, well, then what is the temple if it's not a literal physical temple in Jerusalem? Well, I think just as with everything else in the book of Revelation, I think this is a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a symbol. I think it's a metaphorical picture of the church. The, the, the temple is here, it's, it's, it's symbolic, it's, it's metaphorical, which is consistent with the way that God communi- communicates about the church throughout the book of Revelation. The, 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 in the book of Revelation, the, the temple is, is actually never presented as a physical building. Temple shows up 12 times in, in this book, uh, 10 of them... Um, are speaking about a, 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 a heavenly temple in the, in the present time, and two are speaking about the dwelling of God's presence in the future. The temple is the church. And that is actually one of the ways that temple is used throughout the New Testament. Uh, some six times temples used throughout the New Testament referring to the church. Just listen to this from 2 Corinthians 6, 16. We, speaking of the church, are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.21, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 1 Peter 2.5, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The spiritual house, the, the temple, is the church. That's the way it's spoken of throughout the New Testament. It's the way it's presented in the book of Revelation. So I think this is what we have here. John is being told to measure the church. Get, get, a, get a vision here of, of the church. Verse 1 speaks of the, the altar, measure the altar. That's where worship happens. And then verse 1 also, those who worship. And those who worship are, of course, Jews and Gentiles alike, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being built together into this, this temple. So the, this vision, John is being called to, to, to measure this temple that represents the church. Now why measure it? Why is he telling him to, to do this? Well, John wants, or God wants, John, he wants the seven churches that this letter is written to, 
He wants us to see and to consider this place that belongs to God. This place where his, his glory dwells. This place where worship happens. He's, he's providing evidence that his temple will be built in its fullness. It will prosper. It will be protected despite the fact that it will be attacked. This temple is about to be, to be attacked, but it will stand. So measure it. See it in its fullness. It will be built just as Jesus promised that it would be. Now this is similar to what we saw in the previous cycle with the sealing of the saints in chapter 7. You'll remember the full number of the saints were sealed. Every single one of them God gets. He gets the fullness of his people. Well here again, measure the temple in all of it because the entire temple here is accounted for. Again, we see the, the same scene being presented just with a different metaphor to help paint the picture for us of what God is doing from, from the time of the resurrection to the, the return of Christ. Now verse 2. Verse 2 he says, do not measure the court outside the temple. The, the, the outside court is exposed to, to the world. It's, it's vulnerable to attack. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So this set-apart city where the temple dwells will be besieged. There is, there is an attack coming from the world. It's given over to the nations. The temple is protected, yet attacked. Preserved, yet persecuted. Now this, this, this holy city, this, this comes up again in Revelation, Revelation 21-2, where again the holy city is presented as the church. Listen to this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. It's the same thing, that the holy city is the church, the bride of Christ. So this, this vision that we see here in chapter 11 isn't geographically focused on a city in Jer Jerusalem in the Middle East. It's not geographically focused, but rather it's personally oriented. It's a symbol. The, the, the church is protected and, and persecuted. Now we see uh, an interesting reference there to time, 42 months. Now, anytime we see something that we don't know what it means in the book of Revelation, we're supposed to ask what? Where is that in the Old Testament? Good, I'm glad you asked. So where is that? Well, the book of Daniel is going to come to mind. And we're actually going to see this, another reference to time there. Um, 1,260 days, that's the same amount of time. So you have 42 months, it's the same amount of time as 1,260 days which is the same amount of time as, as three and a half years. We're going to see more of these numbers show up in chapter 12 and chapter 13. These are going to become prominent. And it's referencing to the book of Daniel, to the period of tribulation discussed in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So if you were here during Bible time, we did the book of Daniel. Uh, you'll, you'll remember we went through this whole section and, and talked about this this time of tribulation prophesied by Daniel that begins at the resurrection of Christ and concludes at his, his return. 
That is what's in view here. There is this time that is marked by suffering for the church. Now, as the book of Revelation progresses, there's a theme that's really about to pick up. We, we see it in chapter 12 explicitly, but it begins to pick up here. And that is the, the theme of satanic, demonic attack. It's going to be intensifying throughout the book. The church, the church endures physical attack. She suffers persecution. She will suffer, yet God will continue to protect her. God will, will keep her. God will secure her spiritually as the church faithfully witnesses about Jesus, they will be, they will be cared for. This is intended to give uh, the suffering church I- encouragement. He, he's, he's giving a bit of a, a virtual reality picture here of the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail. This chapter 11 is, is basically a, a picture of that. Jesus is building his church. Measure it out, John. See, it's all there. Chapter 7, they're all sealed. Hell will press against it, but hell will not prevail. Christ will build his church. He will protect his church. He will provide for his church. The temple of God, the church, the people is assaulted on every side, yet she is secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Go see and measure. Well, at this temple, now we meet, we meet two guys. We meet two, two messengers, two witnesses. These messengers of, of truth. I will grant my authority to my two witnesses, verse 3, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So he, we meet these two, two witnesses. Again, in this vision at the temple, there are two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days. The same amount of time as the trampling. So th- their, their talking is going to correspond to the trampling. Their prophesying parallels persecution. They're both going on at the same time. This is the vision. These these witnesses who are here proclaiming gospel truth to the world are enduring suffering. They're both going on at the same time, which is the experience of the church throughout the the ages. Now, who are these messengers? Well, there's a bit of discussion, as you might imagine. (laughs) Who, Who are these two witnesses? Well, there's kind of three options that people come up with. The first is that these are two Christian prophets who died just before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So it's, it's two historical people that we don't, don't really know their names, but this is who they were. There's not really evidence for that, though there certainly were witnesses in Jerusalem who were you know, proclaiming the gospel, but I don't take that view. Number two... These are two Christian prophets who will appear prior to the coming of Messiah, that that God will bring back maybe Moses and Elijah, or others would say this is Enoch 
and Elijah, because those are two people who never died, and it's appointed for man to die once. So these two people who haven't died, these two prophets from the age before the flood, and then the, the age after the flood, these, these two prophets will come back. I used to hold that view. I used to assume that this was Enoch and Elijah, or, or, or maybe Moses and Elijah. But again, I, I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. So that the third view is that this represents the church who serves as as Christian witness, witness to the gospel. They speak on God's behalf from the time of the resurrection to the time of his return. So again, I think we should remember that the book of Revelation is a, it's a picture book. It's, this is a picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a vision of symbols and metaphors. And I think these two witnesses are symbols and, and metaphors, as it were, of, of the church. Now he gives us some insight there, verse 4 as to who these guys are. These are the, the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And you're like, well, thanks, John. <laughs> that doesn't clear up too much, unless you ask the question, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, this takes us back to the vision of uh, Zechariah chapter 4. We've mentioned Zechariah before in our study. Well, Zechariah 4 is in view here, where there's, there's two olive trees that supply fuel for the fire of the lampstand that continually provides light to the nation. There are two olive trees here. So you'll remember that the, the, olive, the olive oil provided fuel for the lamp to keep the fire burning. Well, here, these are the lampstands. They are the, the witness. They are, the Christians are the light of the world. Well, here they are, burning bright. They are the, these, these two Trees, the two lampstands with their fuel, the Spirit of God filling them and fueling their, their words. So John is being shown a, a similar picture to what happened in Zechariah 4. You have here two witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit so their, their lampstands can burn brightly. The, the church in the book of Revelation has, is presented as, as lampstands. Remember that in chapters 2 and 3, fueled by the, the Holy Spirit, just like these two olive trees. Now, why two witnesses? Well, in the Old Testament, you're required to have how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. Anytime you're going to have any sort of evidence presented in a court of law, you need to have two or three witnesses. Well, and you even remember like heaven and earth testify, right? Well, here we have these two witnesses. Uh, I do think as we watch what they're about to do, the ministries of both Moses and Elijah probably come in view. They're going to be doing similar sorts of things that Moses and Elijah did. They're going to be doing some miracles that seem to correspond with their ministries. If that's the, if that's the case, then potentially uh, also in view here is, is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are going to um, yeah, be in line with the the, the ministry of, of gospel message. So the gospel message is not going to contradict the law and the prophets. We are going to, it's going to be witnessing of the same things. Jesus would say that I'd not come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, rather but to fulfill them. Well, the Christian witness is proclaiming that to, to the world. This is where things get wild. So we got these witnesses, and now they start doing some, they start doing some interesting things. Uh, they had some power that this would, be some, this would be some fun stuff to have. Uh, anyway, verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. 
If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That's a pretty, that's a, that's a prophet power right there, right? <laughs> they're, they're fire breathing. Well, if you see something strange like that, you should ask, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, Jeremiah chapter 5, listen to how God speaks about the ministry of Jeremiah. He says, I am making my words in your mouth, Jeremiah 5.14, a fire, and this people would, and fire shall consume them. So in, in Jeremiah's days, those who refused to receive the word would be devoured. Well, same thing here. Those who refuse to repent and to receive the gospel, yes, they won't be consumed on the spot, but, but what will happen? It's a foretaste or a forepicture of, of the fire that is to come. This is why some, some Sunday mornings, whenever I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, preaching, uh, preaching about the end, I'll, I'll pause sometimes and speak to people there who, who aren't believers. And I'll say, this word, is a, it's, a, it's a word of mercy. You're going to hear this, these words again. You will see this scene again on the last day. These words will be evidence against you on that last day, and judgment will come. I think that's what's in view here. These aren't guys who speak fire and people, you know, blow, you know, consume people just on the spot, but rather it's, it's a picture of these words, these words are real and true, and they will evidence against you on the, on the last day, a consuming fire. We also see here that they're, they're miracle workers, so I, I certainly think God can and does do miracles in our day. Um, I, I think, though, what we're, we're supposed to see are what these miracles represent. They echo, again, the ministry of Elijah with the withholding of rain and the ministry of Moses calling for plagues. And, and I think the picture is here that the, the church aligns with the law and the prophets. We, we don't have a different message. We, in the same way, anticipate judgment that is, that is to come. And we also see that they are persecuted. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So these witnesses will face attack for their testimony of, of Jesus. Here we hear about the beast. He's going to show up a lot more in chapter 13 and, and 17. That This beast is making war on the two witnesses. This is an allusion again to, to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 verse 21 where it spoke of this horn, the beast, will make war with the saints and prevail over them. So that's being echoed here. These witnesses will witness of Christ, but, but persecution will come and persecution will turn deadly. Now, this doesn't mean that for every Christian who is witnessing the gospel that it will always lead to martyrdom. For some, it's mocking. For some, it's disowning by family, 
friends, some are fired for their jobs. But certainly for many Christians, they will be attacked and put to, to death. That is, that is the story of the Christian family. You might think of, of Stephen, who was stoned to death for his witness of Christ. While he's witnessing, he's silenced, right? You might think of Antipas from chapter 2, the faithful one who was, was killed. Well, it says, and their, their bodies will lie in the street. Now, to, to not bury a corpse in the ancient world was an act of shame and humiliation. You're going to slay them and you're going to let them rot in front of everybody to, to shame them, to shame their, their family. Well, this is the point here. Not, not, not that the, 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 the two prophets' bodies will just lie in the streets of Jerusalem, but rather the way that the world will treat God's witnesses, the church, throughout the ages is a disrespectful, dishonoring, shaming sort of thing. That he will put them, the world will put them to death and, and mock them. Again, this is not the experience of every Christian, but this is the experience of Christians. You might think of Nero in the, in the first century who would impale Christians and then set them ablaze and use them as, as torches for his, his banquets. You might think of, of ISIS beheading 21 Coptic Christians on a, on a beach in order to make a propaganda video, just leaving them there to die, be eaten by whatever might. You might think even right now in North Korea, of the, the thousands of our brothers and sisters who are being starved to death. And then they, they're thrown into to dump trucks and hauled off to landfills, just left to rot. That's, that's the way the world, the beast, thinks about believers. Shut them up, shame them. Dishonor them, dishonor their, their God. He says this opposition is like that of, of Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, known for uh, immorality, a, c- a city famous for, for immorality and the forsaking of God for evil. Egypt, the place of, of oppression, right? Attempted to stamp out God's, God's people. The, the world acts like Sodom and Egypt with immorality and with, with oppression. And then do, do you notice the connection there? where their Lord was crucified, in verse 8. What happened to Jesus in Jerusalem, where he was shamed and crucified and died, that is happening to the church, not just geographically located in one place, but around the world. This is what happens to believers in every age, in in every place. The way of the church is the way of, of Christ. We align with him in all things, including his his suffering. That is what is in, in view here. Now, verse, verse 9. For three and a half days, some, uh, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them And make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a 
a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This, this picture of celebration anytime the Christians are, are shut up. These defeated corpses of the prophets that cause celebration, right? This is, I mean, this is the inversion of the gospel hope, right? You have people here from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? They, they celebrate that the speakers have truth. The speakers of truth have been silenced. No more are you going to say to us, repent. No more are you going to tell us what to do with our bodies. No more are you going to tell us about what's right and wrong. You will shut up, we will kill you, and we will celebrate when you're silent. This is the experience of, of believers. We see this even in our day with the continual applause anytime we can, we can silence the the Christian moral agenda because it's oppressive to us. We need to be free to be us, to do what we want with our bodies at any time. Well, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Though the church appeared to be defeated, it will be delivered. Death is not the end for the Christian. There is a resurrection that is to come. This is supposed to make you think, where, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, you remember Ezekiel chapter 37, where you had the valley of dry bones, this, this nation that looked done in her exile? Well, God breathed his breath, the Spirit, into those dry bones and, and made them stand. Well, here again, I think the picture is that all of the slain of God's prophets, the witnesses throughout the ages, that they will not be left to rot and to, to, to be shamed forever, but there is a day coming when they will be told to, to stand, come up here. I think this is an illusion, a presentation of the return of Christ. The church will be raised, she will be raptured to be with him as he comes to bring judgment on the earth. Now, there's discussion about when this, this rapture happens and, and all of that kind of stuff. I, from, from my perspective, the, the rapture of the church is the return of Christ. The, the, those who have died, who have gone on to be with the Lord, um, absent from the body, present with the Lord, our bodies go into the ground, spirits go to be with Jesus. When Jesus returns, as we'll see in chapter 19, um, he's the second coming, but we are also the second coming. Those who have died come with him. And their bodies are brought up from the ground, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and reunited with spirit and glorified, and judgment then comes on the earth. I think that is the picture of what is, is happening here. This is the return of Christ and the, the uh, resurrection of, of those who have fallen but were faithful. There's a great earthquake. There's a, there's a judgment that comes upon the, the city of the world. 7,000. Again, I don't think, as we've, as we've talked about before in the study, symbols here, 
Numbers are symbolic. Seven, the number of completeness. completeness. So, so 7,000 means a, f- a full or complete number of people will be consumed. Yet, there may be some who God grants salvation as these final moments come, come to close. That being said, we don't, do not, as J.C. Ryle would say, do not plan on a late repentance. Don't, we are certainly not intended to hear this and be like, oh, well, I'll just wait until that moment and then I'll believe. That's a fool's errand to think that you can come to God at any time that you want. Today is the day of salvation. So, so don't oppose these witnesses, the witness of the church, but rather receive the word, align with her, even in her suffering, because someday things are going to flip. Those who were mocked and shamed will be resurrected and given new life when Christ returns. And then those who look to be in power over them will then see one who is greater than them when judgment comes and Christ falls upon them. Well, verse 14. The second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. This final trumpet is about to be blown. The church has faithfully witnessed for some 2,000 years. Many have repented and found refuge in Christ. Many have mocked, laughed, ignored. But no more is the picture here. And this is the seventh trumpet, verse 15. So we're going to move now into the seventh trumpet, which is the, the conclusion, I think, of this second cycle. We've seen Christ return, judgment has fallen, and now there is a, there's a scene in heaven. Notice verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. You'll remember this, the scenes flip between the earth and heaven continually. We'll hear Everything is completed now on the earth. Now we are in in heaven. These are what the loud voices in heaven say. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Finally the Lord has said yes here it comes. Right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ is established and is clearly seen now forever and ever. Endless, glorious reign. Verse 16. Here's the 24 elders again. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped, saying, verse 17, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So so again, Christ has come. The seventh trumpet is now blown, which is... I think the the conclusion of all things, the seventh final trumpet is blown, conclusion of all things has happened, Christ has raised his his church up, the witnessing church who was silenced through persecution, he has now raised her, he is now with her, they are reigning together, praise is being given to God by these heavenly beings, the one who is and who was, for you have taken your power and begun to reign, 
This allusion to Psalm 2 is here. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And now we are ushered into a new age where mocking and shame of God's people will be no more, but rather there will be reward. And what is this reward? What is this reward? Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peelings of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The ark of the covenant throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the presence of God. Here, God's temple in heaven is open. So there was a temple on earth. The temple on earth is there witnessing. It's a church witnessing. Now we see the temple in heaven in whom the ark dwells. God and people are now brought together, united. God dwells in the midst of his people, right? This is what he promised that he would do. When, when, you, when, the, when you see this, in the, so the ark, if you remember, the ark of the covenant is a box, um, and on top you have the lid. Anybody know what the lid is called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. And what would happen in the, in the Old Testament is this would be kept in the Holy of Holies. And inside the ark were the law of God, a couple other things, Aaron's rod, some manna, but the law of God. And you would have the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would bring blood in, and he would do what with it? He spread it on the mercy seat. So that when God looked down from heaven, rather than seeing a broken law, that he should then bring judgment, it's atoned for, it's covered he sees the blood of an innocent one shed in their place, and his wrath would pass over them. It would be atoned. Well, here in heaven, in the temple, the people of God, in the midst of her is the Ark of the Covenant. And here, symbolically, that the blood of Christ would cover, and now God can dwell with people. He and his people dwell together. This, this, this Ark is where God would meet with his people. Listen to this from from Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. God meets with his people above the mercy seat. And that is what's happened here. In this concluding of this cycle, it ends with judgment has come, wrath for the, un, uh, the unatoned, and fellowship for those who have been atoned for. God is with his people dwelling in glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the hope of God's people. This is the hope of all of the law and the prophets. And this brings us to the end of the second cycle. Now, does anybody have any questions? Um, you've talked about the significance of numbers, 7, 10, 12. Yep. Um, I think, in, if I remember right, in the book of Revelation, this is the only place where we see the number 2 the two witnesses, why the number two, and is there significance there? Yeah, so uh, I think in, in, in the law, the Old Testament law, you required two or three witnesses. And I just think he has two here. Uh, it could also be reflective of the way that Jesus sent out his disciples. He sent them out two by two. Um, it could be a picture of disciples sent out 
two by two sent by Jesus to witness to the world. That's the way I would take it. So I, I take it as an allusion to what, the way Jesus sent out his disciples initially during, you know, some of his ministry, and then reflective of the requirement of the law to have two or three witnesses. Because often you'll hear heaven and earth testify against you. There's two witnesses. God, yeah, I think same picture. Good morning. Hey, good morning. On uh, chapter 11, when it says, get, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So metaphorically, the measurement could be the people of God. Totally. Yeah, that's what I, I think it's the Not necessarily in the church, but the people that believe that are currently not in the church. Well, I would say if you are a Christian, you're in the church. Don't hear that as it means you're a member of a local church. It means you're in the church universal. I think this is a picture of the church universal. This is not like one of the seven churches. The seven churches, the true believers would be part of this temple, just as Delray Baptist Church or whatever church you're a part of would be part of this church universal. So I think it's the universal church. It's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not the local churches. Though the seven churches are local churches, local churches are part of the universal church, at least the believers are. Does that make sense? Great question. All right, now on to cycle number three. This is wild. Okay, so one time I did Revelation 12. Uh, I preached Revelation 12 as uh, my Christmas sermon, uh, and the title of it was What Satan Thinks of Christmas. Um, and you'll, I had, um, there was a, a visitor afterwards. Um, she was, uh, she was an, an older lady. She came up to me, she goes, I've heard a lot of stuff. I've never heard anything like that before on Christmas. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, well. Welcome to Delray Baptist. So anyway, uh, here we go. What does Satan think of Christmas? Well, Revelation chapter 12 through 14, we're going to see the cosmic conflict. Many people will see a it, Revelation being broken up into two major sections, chapters 1 through 11 and then 12 through the end. So there's a couple different ways that people see it, it broken up. One of the major hinge points is this one because there now becomes a very it's like, it's like uh, remember the Wizard of Oz where they pull back the curtain and you see who's back behind it all? Well, we've seen allusions to some of it, but now the curtain's going to be pulled back and you're going to see behind the curtain of all of this darkness that's happening is Satan and his antichrist and his false prophet and the world system Babylon. This is what's behind it all, the great horror of Babylon. All of this, you're going to see the spiritual realities that are in play in everyday life. So we get a, a view into all of that. This is the beginning of that. Uh, they're, they're all going to be introduced in this cycle. So John is about to see here why the church suffers this persecution. And the reason is because there's a cosmic battle going on between God and Satan. Satan hates God and he hates God's children. This is why Genesis 3.15 speaks about the, the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, that they will, there will be enmity between the two. They will hate one another. There will be hate between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman of faith. That is the history of the world, that there's, there's two groups of people, those who are children of the Satan and those who are children of God, and there is enmity between the two. Um, aimed at us, hate against the people of God, where we would love the, the 
the offspring of Satan, but we, would, we want them to repent and to believe. So it's a very different sort of relationship that way. But the picture is there's a war constantly going on between the two. The enemies of the church are introduced here. Chapter 12, we're going to meet the dragon. Uh, chapter 13, we're going to meet these beasts. There's a beast out of the sea who we, we're going to call the Antichrist. And then there is a beast out of the earth who's going to be the false prophet. Then we're going to, in chapter 14, meet the great, the great whore, the great harlot, Babylon, the world system. Well, after we meet them, then we're going to watch them each be destroyed in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. So he's going to introduce the enemies, and then God's going to execute the enemies. That's basically what's going to happen. Chapter 12. So let's start chapter 12. Verses uh, 1 through 6, a savior is born, the dragon pursues the Christ. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So John sees a vision in, in heaven concerning events on the, on the earth. These are the behind-the-scenes view of Jesus' birth and his ascension and what happened afterwards. You'll notice verse 1 and verse 3, a, there's two signs. A great sign in heaven appeared, a woman, and another sign appeared, behold, a great red dragon. So there's two signs, a woman and a dragon. Well, where do you see this in the Old Testament? Well, we just talked about it in Genesis chapter 3, where the seed, uh, I'll, I'll just read it, 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be fighting going back and forth between these two. Ultimately, Jesus is the serpent crusher. Uh, but, get this, Romans 16 says soon, God will crush Satan underneath your feet. What? We join Jesus in the serpent crushing. That's cool. Anyway, so God says that through a woman will come a child who will crush a serpent's head. This woman and child will be at war with the serpent. Verse 12, full display. The woman here is, again, symbolic. It is the true Israel. It is the people of God. It is the Genesis 3:15 woman who has the offspring. The, 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 there's a promised child to the, the women of God, as it were, to the people of God through Adam and Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Mary. So this woman isn't Mary, though it's Mary. What I mean by that is Mary indeed is the blessed woman through whom the, the child actually comes, 
but the depiction of who she is is, is bigger. She's the, the woman who's part of the woman, as it were. She's the faithful bride. She's the faithful bride. She is that Genesis 3.15 woman, just as Sarah was, just as Rebecca was, just as all the others were, just as all the people of God are. Stay with me. So the woman isn't Mary, though it's Mary. <laughs> um, the descriptions echo things about about Israel. You remember Joseph's dream, Genesis 37, where the sun, moon, and stars are present and bow down? Well, she has also a a crown of 12 stars. A crown is given to overcomers. Well, these are the the 12 tribes. Um, The stars, remember God told Abraham, uh, your offspring will be as many as the stars of the sky. I think all of that imagery is just being woven together here to show this Woman, this, the people of God here are as many as the stars of the sky, and that's their crown, it's their glory, all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, verse 3, the dragon, which we get interpretation, verse 9, is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, which, by the way, just to be really clear, Satan is not a fairy tale. He's often portrayed as some little, you know, mini, mini dude with a pitchfork and a red jumper and you know he's just kind of running around poking people like no he's he's real and he's terrifying he's a real spiritual enemy of of God and the saints and he loves to shed blood there's seven heads seven diadems ten horns all numbers of completeness and authority and power this dragon has counterfeit authority you see Jesus was some of the same sorts of things well the dragon loves to imitate. He hates Jesus, but he loves, he wants the power and authority that Jesus has, which is part of his prideful rebellion. Well, anyway, verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Some see this as the persecution of God's people, that he takes out a great number of, of God's people. Daniel chapter 12 refers to God's people as stars, similar to what we see here with her wearing on her head. Others see this as described in Satan's rebellion long before, where he led a third of the stars, angels, um, in rebellion. I'd go that way, but we'll see. Anyway, I don't think it's important for the the overall interpretation of what's happening here. Notice what he does, though, in verse 4. With the birth of this one, he stood before the woman to do what? Devour. Not as a midwife to deliver, but as a monster to devour. He hates Jesus. Now, how did this show up in history? Remember Herod? Matthew chapter 2. Herod became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. Herod, under the influence of Satan, issued a focused infanticide in order to try to devour the Christ. By the way, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but political rulers can be used by either God or Satan. Herod, in that case, by Satan. Well, his plan fails, of course. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So it's a summary of of Jesus' entire life, from his incarnation to his ascension. 
He, he's born to rule the nations with an iron rod. That's an allusion to Psalm 2. Um, Jesus' ascension is his, his visible coronation as God's king who will crush and, and rule. This, this movement from incarnation to ascension does not diminish his life, his miracles, his teaching, his crucifixion, his resurrection, any of that. It's just not what he's emphasizing here. He's showing that he came, that he ascended. So he didn't get devoured by the serpent is the point. Verse 6, but what about the woman? What about her? She's left behind. Well, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the woman, the true Israel, the people of God, the church, flees. They, they, they flee to the wilderness because the dragon pursues. Right? That's what, that's what the dragon is doing. Well, she uh, is in the, the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of trial. It's a place of testing. But that's not all that happens in the wilderness for God's people. What else happens for God's people while they're in the wilderness? God cares for them. It's a place where they are nurtured and preserved, just like the Exodus journey. Our shoes never wore out. We had manna every morning. We were cared for all the way there. Though it was hard, those in the midst of suffering, God cared for his people in the wilderness. It's a picture of God's people fleeing in the midst of this time where the, the Satan pursues and seeks to consume the church. She's running, but she's protected by God. Huh, have we seen that before? Yeah, they've been sealed. Yeah, they've been t measured in the temple. Well, here it's pictured as a woman running into the wilderness cared for by God. It's all the same sorts of of imagery. Again, 1,260 days, this amount of time has been echoed five times in Revelation, 42 months, time, time and a half. Um, it's, again, the time of tribulation for God's people as foretold in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, from the resurrection to the return. So as long as God's people are fleeing from the Satan, they're cared for by God. They're persecuted, yet they're provided for. They suffer, yet they are sustained. Satan opposes here the birth of the Son of God. Satan oppresses believers of the Son of God. And Jesus ascends to rule and reign as king. That's what's here in these first six verses. Well, now verse 7. This is wild. Satan is thrown down. What you're about to see in verse 7 and following is the effect of Jesus' ascension. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Let's just stop there for a moment. Notice, Satan is defeated. In verses 7 through 9, we see the, the, the ascension of Jesus sets off this epic battle in, in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the result, verse 8, is he is defeated and no longer any place for them. Four times it said, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. What does that mean? It means 
that something has changed in the way that the spiritual world works because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus is the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus shows his, he's coming as the Savior. His crucifixion, he's the substitute for sinners. His resurrection, he's the victorious one. His ascension, he is the king, and now as king, he kicks off a revolution, which begins with, first things first, Satan, your access pass to heaven is now revoked. You no longer have any place here. You're kicked out. What that means is Satan can't go into heaven any longer. Remember in the book of Job, you see Satan coming before God. And what did he come before God to do? To accuse Job. <laughs> he can't any longer. He can no longer come into the presence of God and accuse the people of God. Why? Because Jesus is there now and the saints are there with him. And Satan is now cast out. So Satan no longer has that access to go before God and accuse believers. Because their advocate is there, the almighty ascended one. He has kicked him out. He's thrown down. There's no longer any place for him there. Something has changed. Jesus is conquering. Well, their salvation is secured. Look at this, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. <laughs> This is, there is celebration in heaven, declaration, good news of great joy for all the people. Jesus has accomplished salvation. He has defeated Satan. He is delivered from sin and death. His, his power is on display. His authority is seen. The one who formerly accused them day and night in order to condemn them, he has been conquered. And now who else? Not only... He's been conquered not just by Jesus, but who else joins in the conquering, verse 11? We do, if you're in Christ. They have conquered him. Believers conquer Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We have united, been united with Christ in his, by faith into his conquering. His conquering is our conquering. His blood is our boast. What this means is, dear saint, Satan and all of his accusations no longer have any power against you. There's a great song call, um, called Embracing Accusations by Shane and Shane. If you've never heard it and you feel a lot of guilt and shame over stuff, you should totally listen to it. What it is, it's talking about how Satan comes and accuses of all the ways that you haven't kept God's law and all the ways you've fallen short. And uh, the, the artist says, uh, yeah. The devil's right, but he's preaching the song of the redeemed because Jesus died for it. He died for all of my transgression. Satan doesn't know it, but he's preaching the gospel. So every single time you feel accused, you can say, it's all true and more, but it's all paid for in full, and Christ in his blood has covered it all, and now my righteousness is before the throne of God. That's good news right there. You conquer over the accusing one in Christ. 
God's people share in his overcoming victory now. For they have not loved their own lives even unto death. Rejoice, O heavens, verse 12. Salvation is secure. Accuser is silenced. Let us rejoice. But it ain't over yet. Rejoice, verse 12, you heavens and you who dwell in them. So if you made it home, praise the Lord. But woe to you on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So those in heaven are safe from Satan's attacks, but those who are on earth are still, and now intensely, increasingly so, the focus of his fury. So we can celebrate still because Ephesians 1 tells us that we are seated with him in the heavens. So it's true, positionally, all the stuff we just talked about is still true, but practically we still experience his fury now until we're delivered and be with God through death. Watch this, verse 13. Satan is going to come on the attack now. Where am I? Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. It's the same amount of time we've seen repeatedly. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan pursues, right? Chases, persecutes is the word. Chases the woman, again, symbolic of the people of God. She is fleeing from the serpent. Not in her own strength, though. She is given wings of an eagle. She has supernatural assistance. I wonder if that's in the Old Testament. Sure it is. I wonder where it shows up in the Old Testament. If you had to guess, where would you say? Exodus. Very good. Exodus 19. The Lord said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's, it's the Exodus again. All, all that imagery here. God has delivered his people through the Exodus and he's doing it again now in the greater Exodus. As they're in the wilderness, he is caring for them. He takes her to the wilderness. Again, Israel wandered there on the way to the promised land, but God graciously preserved her and protected her. She's nourished for all of this time, time and a half a time, the 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. Again, reference to Daniel 9, the time of tribulation from the resurrection to the return. This is, it's that whole time again. It's all the same imagery presented again and again and again. By the way, you remember Jesus, when he went into the wilderness and did battle with Satan, he was victorious. We now are in the wilderness with Satan pursuing us, but because we're in Christ, we'll be victorious again. Verse 15, Satan pours water out. You might ask, where's that in the Old Testament? Very good. Where did Satan try to trap God's people with some water? 
Exodus, right? You remember the Red Sea? Pharaoh backed him up against the Red Sea, and Israel's like, we're done. And, God, and Moses is like, what? Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Same sort of picture here. God miraculously intervened for them. Then, through the Red Sea, well, he does it again here. It's really interesting. Number 16 is, the, is another time that you see the earth open up and swallow things down. When Korah rebels, well, Satan here attempts to overthrow the church, but Jesus enables the church to overcome his attacks and delivers them miraculously. It's like he swallows up all of the things that would have swept them away. God protects them. So Satan's throwing his best things, and Jesus is catching them and being like, nah, not my people. That's, that's kind of the, the picture, I think, that this imagery is intended to, to give to us. Who are the rest of her offspring there in verse 17? I, just, I think it means referring to the rest of believers in history. From the first century, the resurrection, to when Christ returns. Satan isn't going to stop, I think, is the picture. Even if, even if he's resisted and God protects, I think he's going to keep pursuing until it's over. So we meet the dragon. He's bad, but we're safe from him because Jesus has got us. Just like he does with the ceiling and with the temple and the whole thing. He's got his people. Now there's more bad guys. Weird stuff. Chapters 13. As if that wasn't weird enough. Here we go. We're going to meet some beasts now. The beast from the sea and the beast from the, the earth. Chapter 13. Uh, let's just go through 1 through 10 here. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, uh, on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So the dragon and the beast are working together. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which is the same amount of time that we've seen all the way through. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of faith of the saints. Here we meet the first of two beasts, the beast of the, the sea. So the beast of the sea, this is all corresponding with Daniel chapter 7. Um, you have the beast of the sea who is, I think we, we would call him the Antichrist. Um, and this is, so this is an anti-Christian persecution. Um, more about that in a second. The beast of the earth we'll see is anti-Christian religious propaganda. So we'll call him the false prophet, as commonly, commonly called. Well, these first two verses of chapter 13, we see that the beast is empowered by Satan. He has his authority. That's the seven heads, the seven kings. We're going to see them in chapter 17, so we'll do more of that there. 
Notice he's opposite of Christ. So Christ is in, Christ empowers his people by the Spirit of God. He is empowered by the Spirit of God, as it were. Satan empowers the beast here by his satanic power, his satanic spirit. Again, this beast in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, there were four beasts. Daniel got interpretations of each of them. And you'll remember that each of the beasts represented uh, great governmental empires. Uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. But the fourth beast, Daniel couldn't figure out. It was a future beast. It was exceedingly great. All the way through Daniel, we understand the fourth beast to be Rome. So this is, in some sense, tied to, the, to Rome. Well, the beast has the authority of Satan, verse 4. He blasphemed God, verses 5 and 6. He wars against the saints, verse 7. He is worshipped by the pagan world, verses 4 through 8. Again, the beast, I think, is anti-Christ. I think it's a person who embodies everything that opposes God. Now, 1 John tells us that there are many, many antichrists. Which, again, I think fits very well with everything that we see here, that there is constant, that history is repeating itself, and a lot of these things again and again. So the, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well all the way throughout history. Um, one of the most fun exercises is to look up all of the different Antichrists that the church has said. Are the Antichrists? Actually, I have a book in my, my study called uh, When Time Shall Be No More. And there's a whole chapter, it's about the end time stuff, and the whole, there's a whole chapter on all the different people who... Christians have said over the years are the Antichrist. I mean, like, it's everybody. <laughs> like, um, and in many ways, it's true. They're all Antichrist figures. I do think that Revelation, and particularly 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaks of a singular man. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of the man of lawlessness. He will be the embodiment of lawlessness, who will be, I think, the, the, the horn of the beast, it's, it's him. So some sort of world ruler who everybody will be duped by and everybody will follow, which, you know, it's, in recent years it's been very interesting to watch how people can just get enamored with particular leaders and just do crazy, weird, stupid stuff. It happens in every age. But Well, in some sense, this head of the beast is, is wounded, um, maybe it echoes the crushing of the head. I don't know. Uh, does, he, does, he, does he die and then come back by some sort of demonic power? There's a lot of speculation. I'm uncertain. Whatever it means, though, the activity of the beast is he's carrying out what the dragon does. And the dragon is pursuing the woman. This beast is about killing the woman. And he will probably do it through deceptive ways where he'll pretend to be the friend of the woman. And then he will slit her throat. He, he's that sort of deceptive figure. This is why the church must be very, very careful about aligning with political rulers. It's going to not end well. Just don't. It's not our hope. Our, our hope is in heaven. Our king is in heaven. He's the one that we look to and trust in. Just be careful. I'm not saying don't be um, involved in politics. I'm saying don't let politics own you. Be very careful. It, I've, we've seen the church get duped and... Anyway, the world's response, of course, there's verse 4, is, to, is deception, worships the beast, he's blasphemous, um, he makes a war against God's name, there's a, there's a coming persecution all under the, the people of God. But notice here, verse 10 is the point of the book. Did you catch it? 
hey, if you're to be taken away in captivity or if you're to be slain with a, with a sword, it may happen. The beast may physically hurt you. But what's the application in verse 10b? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Do not give up no matter what comes because he who is dead is alive forevermore and you are with him and you will conquer through death. You may not go around. Nobody, most, most, most people are not going to escape death. But we will go through death. And if you've got to go into captivity and be exiled like John is on Patmos or if you've got to get your head cut off like the other pictures that we've seen, if that's what's going to happen, just hold to your faith. Jesus is faithful. It'll be worth it. Hang in. That's the application of the book. Which is why one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the pre-tribulation rapture. The whole book seems to be presenting get ready to die. Not get ready to just, you know, be taken away. And I'm not throwing shade at anyone. That's just one of the things that was convincing for me to not, to not hold to this, what I perceive to be a very American idea that somehow we're going to be exempted from suffering. So, verse 11. Now we're going to meet another beast, the beast of the earth. This is the false prophet. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Hmm. So this beast is going to appear innocent, but is actually going to be saying deceitful things. Jesus warned against this, didn't he? Beware of false prophets who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Here it's a dragon in sheep's clothing or lamb's clothing. It's that same sort of imagery. Deceitfulness. Looks innocent, but it's deadly. Um, I would go anyway. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So the aim of this, this beast, which again, again I think is the, the false prophet, world philosophies, all of that kind of stuff, is going to point toward worship the beast, worship the beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven uh, on the earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that even the image of the beast might speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So you're going to die if you don't worship this thing. Also it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understand calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. So the earth beast here is the, the false prophet. He calls people to worship the sea beast, the antichrist. Is this a person or is this a religious system, social religious system? I certainly think if it is a person, he's also going to be working through religious and social systems, philosophies of the day, things that people believe. Um, we've said a, a lot of things here. Lamb dragon appears to be innocent. Um, Notice here, he's going to perform miracles to deceive the world, and he's going to kill those who won't follow. Where have you seen that in the Old Testament? 
that if you won't follow or bow down before the image of a beast, you're going to die? Or the, yeah, yeah, where was that? Remember Daniel 3 with Nebuchadnezzar? That if you don't bow down to the idol made, that you're going to die? Well, that's coming back, y'all. And then listen to these words of Jesus in Matthew 24 that echo all of this. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Listen, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What that means is, whatever it is that this, this beast is doing, this false prophet is doing, it is going to be so convincing, so incredibly wowing. It, I mean, it looks like he's going to make some sort of idol start talking. He's, what, he's going to, whatever, whatever miracles and magic he's doing, which by the way, Satan has power to do that when allowed by God. And God is giving again the world over to deception. This is part of what we've seen all the way through the book. It's so strong that even the elect might be duped if God hadn't cut the time short. One of the most important things for all of us to remember in the days of head, ahead is this. And I don't remember if I mentioned this last night or not, but we'll say it here. Do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. Do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. We walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't matter. The way in the Old Testament that you can tell whether a prophet is true or not, is not whether he performs miracles. The way you can tell is if he speaks God's word truly. That's the way you know a true prophet. Church, there is much deception coming. I mean, we talked last night briefly about like the things you can do with computer-generated images, and you can watch a video and not know it. Did, did, did the Pope really do the Allen Iverson moves and dunk on people? It looked like it in that video I saw. Is that real? That whole, that whole thing, is it real mommy? Is it real daddy? Is that show real? That is us. This is why the church must grow in discernment, which is why I'm Satan. You know what I do to the church in America? I just feed us on entertainment, cotton candy. Just be entertained in the church. Be entertained, be entertained. So do you feel comfortable? Are you happy? Is everything good for you? You're affirmed. You know your self-esteem high enough? Everybody good? That does not set you up for perseverance. That sets you up to be deceived by the world. We need Christ's esteem, which then will help you to understand yourself, but it's rooted in who God says you are, not what the world says. It's, it's, do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. And again, he'll, mark the, he'll require this mark of allegiance. We've talked about this, this mark of the beast. Um, and there's all kinds of created ideas of what, what this means. Um, Many, I mean, thousands upon thousands of interpretations. The different combinations have led people to identify this as Nero or Muhammad or Hitler or Obama or Trump. <laughs> a while back, I was in a coffee shop, and I got one of those bougie drinks that cost too much, and it cost $6.66. And the person looked at it and went, do you want to buy something else? <laughs> it's like, it's like, I was like, no. And they're like, ah! You know, <laughs> so I'm good. I ain't worried. Um, <laughs> And so they'll be like, see, I told you Starbucks was the devil. And like, all right, that's fine. Um, but, <laughs> but there is some sort of required allegiance that is visible that if you won't give it, you will be cut off 
from normal things. Some of you feel this already in your jobs. But there's things that you do at your work that everybody else does that if you don't do, gosh, you're just on the outs. Or it might cost you your job or a promotion or whatever it may be. It's not going to get easier. This is why you, Jesus says the first thing is if you're going to follow me, you've got to die. Take up your cross and follow me. You lay aside all of your rights and glory just like I did. And you follow me because it's the way of life. So will there be literal chips in your forehead and on your hand? I mean, obviously people are doing that already. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can pay for stuff by getting chips in your hand. I don't think that that's the mark of the beast. I do think, though, that the mark of the beast might give you permission to use those things, meaning your allegiance to the world. And if you won't give your allegiance to the world, then your iPhone won't work, and then whatever else, everything else can be cut off, and then you're going to be living, you know, under a bridge. That can happen. So I do think it's all connected. What's the 666? Uh, 777 is perfection and completeness, and I think this is the, the three sixes. So it's, the three sevens is like, you know, in Vegas you're winning, from what I've heard, you're winning, um, it's great. Well, in, in the Bible, the three sevens together is perfection, perfection, perfection. Well, this is imperfection, imperfection, imperfection. It's the whole unholy trinity of the, um, the dragon, the beasts, and Babylon, all of it together. So I think it's all of that. Are you going to align with the dragon? Are you going to follow the beast? Are you going to be of Babylon? 666. Imperfection, imperfection, imperfection. Which, by the way, I think just practically makes so much more sense than being scared of whether you should get an iPhone or not. I think practically this serves your soul so much better to understand that it's everyday life stuff. Do you lie or not? Do you cheat on your taxes or not? Are you faithful to your spouse or not? Are you going to slander people or not? Like all of that, that's real. it shows do you love God or not. Like, that's real. And this is one of the reasons that I think that if you press the book of Revelation in the wrong way, it doesn't become as helpful as it's intended to be. Chapter 14, time for the harvest. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Oh, we've seen them before. That's right, because this is a representation of what we saw before who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, that is, the seal. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the uh, four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Pause. This is why I don't think it's a select number of religious, of, of Jewish ethnic people. God does not seem to do that with his people in glory that oh, only the holy choir gets to sing this song. No, it's all of God's people. Only the ones who are taught of God will be able to sing this. Anyway, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, it is those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no lie, for they are blameless. Striking picture here. These 144,000 again, they are singing. Now what does it mean that they haven't defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins? Does this mean, uh-oh, if you're not a virgin or if you've had sexual relations, that you're not going to heaven? Obviously not. It's a gift from God. So no, that's, it can't mean that. Then what? Maybe it's a metaphor. Oh, that makes sense, just like everything else in the book. But what does it mean then? 
the bride of Christ is to remain faithful. We are to not give ourselves to other lovers. We remain pure. The same imagery is used in Revelation 21.9. She's the bride. 2 Corinthians 11 particularly is helpful here. Paul says, I betrothed you as a bride unto Christ, and he wants to keep her pure. Stay holy. Don't give yourself to another lover until you see Jesus. Then give yourself to him. That's the imagery. I think that's exactly what's happening here. It's the call for the people of God to be faithful unto our bridegroom. We don't give ourselves to, to another. I think that's the imagery that is in play here. Almost all commentators agree with that, which is pretty amazing because they don't agree on anything. Anyway, verse, verse 6, then I saw, oh, by the way, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Just meditate on that. You can't follow the lamb wherever he goes if you don't know his word. Know his word and follow him wherever he goes. Wherever he leads you, it will be, it will be through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes. It will be green pastures, still waters. He's a good shepherd, but follow him wherever he goes. Safe. Well, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, uh, and, and language. He said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship who made heaven and earth and the seas and springs of water. And then another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which he's going to take up in chapter 18 in another cycle. And she, uh, uh, she who made all the nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So this angel declares, three angels come, call to fear God, a declaration Babylon's going to fall, and then a warning of what will happen if you f give yourself to the beast. That you, you drink of that wine, you're going to drink of another cup, the cup of the wrath of God. Again, echoes the call for the endurance of the saints. Soon you will rest from your labors and your deeds will follow you. Pause, foreshadowing. We're going to see later on that the church, the bride, is dressed in white linen. Anybody know what the white linen is? The righteous deeds of the saints. Your deeds in this life will be what you're dressed in forevermore. The splendor of obedience in this life is beautiful to God. And it's what you will be decked out in forevermore. How? I don't know. But God thinks it's going to be beautiful. And when we get there, we'll see why. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on it was one like a son of man. The golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the wine, or from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. It's a picture of Joel chapter 3, with a coming harvest and a, a, a sickle coming through in judgment. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood followed the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This, of course, is a picture of the return of Jesus and the judgment that follows. It's likened to a grape harvest. During a grape harvest, the vintner takes grapes to the wine press, and the way that they are squeezed out is they are trodden upon. You step on them, and it squishes out the grapes, and the juice runs down, and it's captured into containers. That's how you get grape juice in the ancient days. Well, here, the trotting of grapes is a different image that echoes Isaiah 63, Lamentations 1, Joel 3, where God comes in stomping on his enemies. It's a vivid, gruesome picture of Jesus stomping his enemies. Listen to this, Isaiah 63. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads the winepress? This is speaking to Messiah. I have trodden the winepress. I trod them in my anger and trampled upon them in my wrath. Wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. It's very interesting. In Revelation chapter 19, when we see this scene again and Jesus returns, do you remember it says that his robe is dipped in blood? People always think, oh, he shed his blood for me. That's true, but it's not the, that's not what that's about. What's on the blood on his robe in Revelation 19 is this it's the blood of the enemies that he has crushed. And you say, oh, that's, that's harsh. I thought Jesus was gentle and lowly. Oh, he's all kinds of gentle and lowly, unless you won't repent. And if you don't repent, then he is holy and mighty. Not that gentle and lowly isn't holy or mighty, but it's a different side of it. And he will bring his righteous good wrath. Because he's good, he will judge evil. Putin will not laugh forever. Hitler will not laugh forever. The mockers of Jesus will not laugh forever. Those who behead Christians will not laugh forever. Judgment comes, and it's good and right. This is located outside the city. Rejected picture cast away. It's, so, it's a picture that the, the, the blood rises so high. It's, I mean, for blood and battle to be up to a horse's bridle, this is a severe judgment. Ancient accounts of wars where there was much more bloodletting because of swords and whatnot will, will speak of fields that turn into ponds of blood. So this is not hard to imagine. Though it's sorrowful and weighty to imagine. That's the third cycle. Lord have mercy. You can see why this book would serve a soul and make you say, I, I don't want to align with the world then. I don't want to give 
the beast. I want to have, have courage, and I need you to help me to have courage. This is why it's written to churches. Because Christians need one another to help each other to live this out. You can't do this alone. You need the grace of God, which he supplies in full. And he does that primarily now by his spirit and through his people. We need one another. Questions about the third cycle before we fly through the fourth. See a hand there. So chapter 12, um, in verse 14, where it talks about the woman being given the wings of the eagle. When you said, where is that in the Old Testament? I said, Isaiah, Isaiah 40. And then you said, Exodus. And I thought, oh, he's right. But when it comes to this Old Testament imagery, is it really like a right-wrong? Or is it like good, best? Uh, I, I missed the first part. The, the, the two images were what? Oh, wh when you said, where are the wings of eagles found in the Old Testament? I said Isaiah 40. And then you said Exodus. Oh, yeah. So, so I think the prophets are drawing upon the law. So the, 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 the prophets, everything they say draws on stuff from the law. So it makes sense that the law and the prophets are saying the same thing. So if, you, if I said Exodus and you said Isaiah, well, Isaiah might be quoting Exodus. So, yes, yeah, so there's multiple references all the way through. God, God sews with the same sort of, of, of thread often. Yeah, great. Yes, yeah, so like locusts are part of the, the plague it promised in uh, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Well, it's also spoken of in Joel. So he picks up on the locusts and he goes, well, it's going to be more than critters, though. It's going to be Babylon. And then here he's going to pick it up and go, well, it's going to be demons. So it's going to get worse and worse. Yep. Another question back there. Yeah. Um, I think it was chapter 13. You were talking about the exclusive, the exclusive 144,000. Uh -huh. um, I know you said you didn't think it was specific to specific individuals, but much like 666, is there a symbolism of 144,000? Yeah, were you here last night? Okay, yeah, so last night in chapter 7, uh, we, we, we saw the picture of the 140, so 12,000 from each 12 tribe. So 12 times 12 is uh, 144 times 1,000 is 144,000. So I think it's an imagery of all of the people of God from all time. So, yeah, great, great question. That's right. <clears throat> question here, qu question there, question here. Yeah. Uh, Garrett, the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, talks about cleansing of the tabernacle. And Hebrews 9 says that Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. Do you think in Revelation 12, he's going into heaven to cleanse heaven and then yeah. cast out Satan? Yeah, yep, that's exactly right. So Satan's been prowling around up there. It's stinky. Like you walk into a house, you're like, ooh, something up in this place. You got to open the windows, clean it out. Well, in a much more holy sense, Satan has been able to have access. Jesus comes in. This place is holy now. And now he brings his people up. He's there. And that's why Satan is no longer allowed in. Yeah. Is that John 14? I go to prepare a place for you? That's happening at the same time. So part of the preparation for the place that will come down out of heaven from God is all of that. So, yeah, it's all tied together. Great. Thanks. One more here, and then we're going to take a, a quick break. I don't know about you. I think this, this book is fascinating. I love it. But anyway, go ahead. Hey, Garrett. Um, I don't know if you already said this, but um, 
how are you getting that Babylon is the world, like just a world system, um, and why Babylon? Chapter 17 and 18, you'll see. Okay. Yeah. Great question. Great. Let me pray, and we'll take a seven-minute break. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Oh, God, would you help us? Aid us in understanding. Show us more. In the name of Jesus, amen.